feels like it's been a while. Yeah, it's been about a month. It feels longer. Yeah, but lots lots happened in that month. Yeah. In particular, Lee's missed out on something that uh, that you and I oh. went to that I think we need to address. I'm yeah. super jealous. So the, you guys went to uh, we went an to, event. Yeah, we went to this talk hosted by MUFON. What does MUFON actually stand for again? The Mutual UFO Network. Right. And UFO, of course, stands for an identified flying object. Right. And so it was at the Super Wonder Gallery here in Toronto on College. Shout out to Super Wonder Gallery. And there was a speaker from MUFON. I think he was a former president. Yep. And then there was a speaker. Well, I, he doesn't have the same kind of credentials. He was a... Uh, he was uncredentialed. He was uncredentialed. Let's just put it that way. But and he had um, some charts and graphs and stuff. Charts and graphs and numbers that were inaccurate that we pointed out to him. Oh, yeah. Many people pointed out to him. And uh, a musician who they referred to as a quote-unquote experiencer, like a magnet for experiences with with aliens. So these are people, what, who claimed that they had been abducted or that they saw aliens? What What... What were they talking about? Well, the first person uh, was just talking about UFO sightings for the most part. Mm-hmm. And he had some uh, some clips, uh, some of which he had said turned out to be hoaxes, some of which just turned out to be uh, mistaken everyday objects, and some of which he said hadn't been identified Yeah, we yet. still don't know. It was Some of it was really compelling. Yeah, that part was pretty arguably, good. Arguably. Like and they claimed to be professional and scientific organization who's investigating these sightings. Yeah, actually, we're going to uh, we're going to join, and we're going to get the training. Yeah, we're going to get the UFO spotting training. Yes. Okay. Well, I will come out for that. Yeah. For okay. sure. And so that was like the most legitimate part of the speak of the speech, I would say, of the talk. Yeah, it was pretty um, good. Although there's still, you know, some speculation that was in his claims. Uh-huh. It wasn't, you know, perfectly scientific. Okay. Um, but really, the last guy was the most sort of off the wall. Uh, he claimed, for example, that he was on an airplane once with his three-year-old son, and there was this man sitting by the window, and he said, I didn't pay much attention to him, and then he asked me if I knew what Foo Fighters were. And he said, well, yeah, I do, and they started maybe, the, I don't know how long they talked for, and then he said, you know, I, don't, I didn't, didn't really remember what his face looked like, but I remember his hands, and he, had his, he put his left hand on his left leg, and I noticed that his fingers were unusually long, hmm. like eight or 10 inches long. And then he says, and then I looked at his face and then I passed out. Huh. And he claims that after he passed out, he was somehow implanted with an object in the back of his brain that he claims has been seen on a brain scan, but obviously we didn't see any image of any sort. So you guys went to... A MUFON gathering where you had the president talk, you had somebody... <laughs> Wait, are we being visited oh no! right now by aliens? Okay. I, well, I guess that solves it then. Aliens are clearly among us. Sure. Yeah. And uh, is this... Am I right? Is this our first podcast on aliens? Which is weird because our logo has a flying saucer on it. Just and been a big teaser this whole time. Yeah. 
Uh, so yes, finally, 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 after almost I think twenty episodes, we're going to do one on aliens. We're going to do a two or three, maybe. Yeah, we're going to do a two or three. Yeah. On, so yeah, this will be saucer. It'll summer. be the season of the saucy saucer season of saucy summer. saucers. <laughs> this is like saucy it. saucer season. Oh, yeah. look at that! So. We're talking about aliens today and then about what, like Area 51 in the future yeah. and stuff like that. Area okay. 51, CIA, Men in Black, the whole deal. And I you think. guys are mostly talking. I'm most I'm playing the lay person, alien person. I know very little about aliens. Well, it's a long summer. Yeah, it's a long summer. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You're about to get a crash course in them. Why don't we start off with, I think, an important question. Do you guys think that aliens exist? By which I mean, do you think that extraterrestrial life exists is there life on places other than planet earth i mean i think it's probable it's very probable that there is i know lee you've talked about the numbers before but i never remember what they are in terms of the probability yeah i actually don't remember the exact numbers either but you can look it up it's called the drake equation and it goes back to is his name frank drake um anyway the the researcher who thought of this uh tried to create a statistical model for what would be the likelihood of extraterrestrial intelligent life, kind of like us-ish, I guess, what's the statistical likelihood of it existing in the Mm -hmm. universe, actually in our galaxy? Mm -hmm. And what I think anybody who looks at that, what they take away from that equation is that the universe is a really, really, really big place. And when there's so much stuff out there, the likelihood that something weird would happen, like life, is actually not that unusual. I always think about, you know, if you talk about what's the likelihood of aliens existing uh, somewhere else, um, aliens like us, like intelligent, thinky things, I think a lot of people would say, well, it's kind of, it seems really statistically impossible because the likelihood of life having arisen on Earth is like a one in a million or one in a billion or one in 10 billion chance. But actually, if you think about the number of planets orbiting a sun like ours at about the same distance Mm -hmm. with about the same temperature just in our galaxy, you're looking at billions. Mm -hmm. And then in the universe, you're looking at billions or hundreds of billions or whatever. I mean, the numbers become meaningless. And at that level, I mean, I think just on raw statistical chance, Mm -hmm. we exist so life can exist, Mm -hmm. right, in the universe. And even if we are extremely rare... The conditions for life emerging somewhere else, I think, for me, is like approaching 100%. Yeah, yeah I'd agree. I th- and I guess the next level question is, but have they been here, right? Yeah. That's, a, that's, that's a very different question. It is yeah. a very... So hold on. Let's ask Nathan. Do you think that life exists on other planets, bracketing for a moment whether they came and visited us? I am convinced by the numbers as well. I mean, if it is... Look at the analogy of winning the lottery. It's almost impossible mm-hmm. for you to win the lottery to the point that it's basically never going to happen. But if millions of people are playing the lottery, people are going to win the lottery despite how unlikely it is. Well, if there being life on another planet is the equivalent of winning a lottery, something that is unthinkably rare and unusual, there are just so many planets, so many stars that there's a lot of people playing that lottery. And so I think probably it's going to it's going to be fairly common in that it's just the sheer numbers of stars is That's staggering and mm-hmm. makes me feel a little bit seasick. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, it's an awful ex- an awful experience of vertigo when you do that thing where you start thinking about how big <laughs> the universe is. But have they visited? What do you guys 
think? Yo, well, Elena, where do you question. stand? Before we get into all this, where do you stand on that? Well, I guess another distinction I want to talk about is the fact that a UFO, something that's unidentified, like, does that necessarily imply that there's some intelligent life leading it? Or is it possible it's just some object we don't understand that's, you know, unexplained, uh, unexplained by some mystery of our, our planet or the way things work? Yeah, I mean, that's a really good point. The question of whether UFOs exist mm -hmm. is not even a question. Right. Because they certainly do exist. There are things in the sky that we have not been able to figure out what they are. Yeah. So absolutely, UFOs do exist. And I think this is an important point because we're going to be using a lot of these phrases and we should be using them carefully. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. UFO just means unidentified flying object. doesn't necessarily mean piloted by little yeah. green men. It's just something we that we don't know what it is. Yeah. So that means that we could be in the very weird position of believing that there yeah. are uh, extraterrestrials yep, with intelligence yep. also believing that there are ufos yeah but which still are, potentially not believing yeah, skeptics about, yeah, yeah but being skeptics about whether those ufos were piloted by extraterrestrials exactly. that's exactly some careful okay. thought right there these lines <laughs> we're drawing it's beautiful so on that i think for me i would say I'm in that camp where I don't believe that they've come visited us. And again, it comes down in a way to my first point, which is just the vast scale of the universe. Uh, do you guys watch sci-fi on TV or, or read books? A little bit in the past, not recently. But no, yeah. I've seen Futurama. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah, I love Futurama. One of the things I find so interesting <laughs> about, especially the sci-fi where they need to travel from one place to another, every sci-fi genre whatever like franchise mm -hmm. has had to figure out how you get from point a to point b right because even at light speed you could be traveling for hundreds of years and you're still just in stupid <laughs> empty space like nothing has happened like yeah. you've seen a star mm -hmm. you know or something um how do you get from here to where there's interesting stuff it, you, you gotta get there you gotta go thousands of light years in a period of time that's going to be enjoyable for viewers at the other end of the tv right so you got to come up with some kind of tech to go faster mm -hmm. than light that's a good point as as we understand physics and of course that's something that's an evolving project and that's an important qualification too that you're saying as we understand physics yes, yes. so but i'm I, i'm bound by that right yep. i mean i'm gonna just accept what we consider to be the laws of physics to probably be the laws of physics although i hold open that things may change mm -hmm. you can't go faster than light speed and if you can't go faster than light speed, which is roughly 300,000 kilometers per second, then you can't get anywhere interesting mm -hmm. in, in, in meaningful time. Like under a million years, it's just you're not going to get anywhere. And that's why I don't think that even though there, I do believe that there are intelligent extraterrestrials, like as opposed to just microbes or something, mm -hmm. I don't think that they, even if they can build amazing UFOs, they just can't get here. Yeah, the only thing that would make that would give me pause uh, about that argument, which I think is a pretty strong argument, and I agree with it, is that there's, I'm sure, a lot of things that we just don't know or understand. That's true. Yeah, that's true. Like, there would, have been a, there would have been a time when getting across the ocean would have seemed unthinkable to humans, or a time when getting across a mountain range would have seemed unthinkable to humans. Mm -hmm. And so, while everything you say, I think, is true, and I can't conceive of how you could get around how huge the universe is, it's possible that someone somewhere has has figured it out. I mean, if any of you have watched Trolls, 
the episode where they just jump through wormholes into alternative universes, right? Then oh, perhaps no. this could, could be, you know. But you see, that's the thing, right? You need some mechanism. <laughs> yeah, you, you need do. some way to get yeah. from point A to point B. Yeah. yeah. But here's the thing: despite the fact that it seems difficult to imagine how anybody could get here, at the same time, we have a lot of not evidence, but we have a lot of speculation, and we have a lot of references to weird things being mm-hmm. in the sky. Uh, there's a lot of Renaissance paintings that if you look at mm. them, they feature things that look like UFOs in the background. Um, of course, science fiction, we've already referenced, has been thinking about this idea of aliens from other planets coming here. There was the the early astronomer who claimed he might have seen canals on Mars, which right. gave rise to the whole idea of Martians and everything. Um, Charles Fort, who wrote The Book of the Damned in 1919, which is just a collection of things weird things that nobody could explain. He was making the argument in the Book of the Damned that we had become so seduced by the idea of science that we were forced to ignore a bunch of really, really weird things that were clearly oh, happening mm, that is. just because they didn't fit in with our scientific paradigm. Right. Mm. And so it's a, it's an amazing book to read because it's just, here's a list of things that fell from the sky. It's like <laughs> fish, <laughs> frogs, blood, like, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, in 1942, which we'll probably have a small podcast on in itself, Uh, there was the battle for Los Angeles where a bunch of anti-aircraft batteries opened fire on something. Hmm. I'm going to post a picture of this one. That's definitely going up on our Instagram, a picture of the battle of Los Angeles because it's very, very cool image, image, very compelling. Yeah, it looks sort of like a little flying saucer. Yeah. Uh, And we already referenced the Foo Fighters, uh, which were these sort of strange lights that were following planes during World War II. But I think the place that we start today is with the modern UFO movement, and I think the modern UFO movement starts in 1947 with a man named Kenneth Arnold. Mm -hmm. Kenneth Arnold, he's an aviator, right? Uh A private aviator who gets into a plane. And it's actually, it really is a good place to start because we also get a lot of the, maybe not a lot, but the tropes of aliens, what they look like, Uh um... The, the even the notion of a, a flying saucer, right? It's, oh, yeah, because this is where the flying saucer starts, ultimately, is with Kenneth Arnold, so sort of. he gets in a plane in 1947. Yep. yep. He, and, and he's a, as I say, he's a, he's a private aviator. He's not working for the military. But he is pretty experienced. He is an experienced aviator. And what happens? So he's flying over Mount Rainier in Washington State. Uh, he's looking for a crashed C-46 cargo plane. That's right. He was part of a private, this this group of people trying to rescue somebody, right? Yeah. Or at least find the remains. Find the remains. Okay. And uh, beautiful clear skies. As he's flying, he spots nine unusual objects in the sky. They're moving in a way that he's familiar, of course, with aircraft. This is 1947. So there are new jets and things like that, which have started to show up in the sky. But he's pretty familiar with how, like the aeronautics of flight. And these things are moving in a manner that seems strange to him as an experienced pilot. Uh, He watches as they go from one mountain to another mountain, and he knows how far apart those mountains are, and he's timing how long it takes them, and he does the math, and he estimates the speed is 1,200 miles per hour, or, for our Canadian listeners, or I guess anywhere in the world other than the States, (laughs) 1,900 kilometers per hour. Wow. Wow. Now, in 1947, I am confident in saying there is not an aircraft that can do that that is made by humans. Mm Mm-hmm. The Bell X-1 would show up uh, a year later in 1948, of course, famously piloted by Chuck Yeager, the first 
uh, human-made craft to deliberately break the sound barrier, and it's only going at 1,000 miles an hour. So in 1947, for something to be going that fast, Mm -hmm. either he's wrong or something very strange is happening. There was a DC-4 pilot, because there's a DC-4, like a passenger plane in the area. They don't report seeing anything unusual. But, and I do like this part, Fred Johnson, a prospector, Hmm. like mining for gold in the mountains, uh, he collaborated Arnold's account and said that he had also seen something strange in the sky. And now, how did he say they were flying? Because this is, isn't this where he says they were flying as though... Uh, discs skipping across water. This is where I think like there's a foundational part of what turns into UFO lore. Mm-hmm. Right. Happens right here. And it's, as you point out, it's a mistake. Because if, if you, like listening right now, if you imagine a UFO, in fact, Elena, imagine a UFO and describe it. What does it look like? It's um, kind of like a Frisbee. Oh, yep. Uh, on You're the top looking at our bottom. logo, aren't you? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> basically. Yeah, it's, it's aerodynamic looking. It's round. It's metallic, perhaps. Or Yeah, that's yeah. your classic UFO. Yeah. It's your flying saucer. And if you look at all the films, and if you look at all the photographs that people have taken, and if you look at a lot of the uh, accounts and reports of people who have seen UFOs, they describe them as flying saucers. And that starts here because the headlines after Kenneth Arnold goes to the newspaper all start talking about how he saw flying saucers. Mm -hmm. The problem is that he didn't say they looked like saucers. He said they kind of looked like half moons or crescents. Uh, If you've seen the the drawings that were done according to his accounts, it kind of looks maybe more like a a bat or a flying wing. It doesn't look like a saucer at all. What he said, as Lee points out, is that they skipped like a saucer skipping over a lake. And so every flying saucer since then, like you have to ask the question, are people seeing flying saucers because that's what UFOs look like? Mm -hmm. Or are people seeing flying saucers because that's the idea that got sticky in our society? Uh, I'll give you an example that I often give my students. Give me an example of something, Elena, that if it was sitting on the ground and I stepped on it, it would cause me to slip in a comic way. Oh, well, I believe you're talking about the banana peel. Of course, the banana peel. Have you ever seen somebody slip on a banana peel? No. No. No, Lee, have you? No, and I even actually, since you gave me this example, I once tried it, and it's harder than you would imagine. <laughs> yeah, didn't like, play out, did no, it? No, you gotta like align that banana peel mm-hmm. to sticky be, side down or slidey side no, down. No, it's gotta too, be. No? It's gotta be the two uh, peels facing each other so that they slip off each other. Oh, and only wow, then you really can you did get try it. this. Well, we're getting some practical <laughs> advice for yeah. a second. <laughs> For a change. I do in my free time. The cartoons have it all wrong. <laughs> totally wrong. Yeah, yeah. If it's a cartoon, if you see a banana peel on a cartoon or any TV show or a video game or yeah. anywhere, if there's, you know it's like coming. Chekhov's gun. Mm-hmm. If there's a banana peel on the ground, someone's going to slip on that. Someone's going down. Yeah. And like Lee, I've also tried to slip on banana peels. <laughs> and like Lee, it was a complete failure. But that idea has gotten sticky. It has sort of taken hold in our society of when we think of a slippery thing, we think banana peel. Mm -hmm. Uh, I was able to trace it back as far as I could go to a joke that a a vaudeville comedian made in New York City uh, at the turn of the 20th century. And I'll tell you the joke, but you have to brace yourself. Humor doesn't age well, so it won't Mm -hmm. be funny. Okay. So you ready? Yeah. Okay. We need canned laughter. Can you get any canned laughter Uh, on there? (laughs) Okay, so... Imagine we're in New York City. I'm a vaudeville comedian. It's like 1900. Hey, this city sure is dirty. How dirty is it? It's so dirty that I saw a guy slip on a banana peel. 
Now, in my defense, I did say that that joke was. <laughs> yeah, you funny. warned us. It's okay. But that's the thing, right? So one mistake that's made uh, by an editor all of a sudden shapes the way people understand this. And because, and this is something we always talk about, the way we think changes mm-hmm. what we see. Totally. People expect flying saucers. They get flying saucers. But uh, this event uh, causes what was known as sort of the first UFO flap. When there's a bunch of UFOs spotted at, at one time, it's referred to as a flap. Uh, and so a flap of, USO, a fl- a of flap. UFOs. That's interesting. Exactly. Like an unkindness. Like a murder of crows and all of that. That's it. Yeah. I was thinking, yeah. what is it, of orcas? Yeah. yeah. Cool. A, okay. a prickle of porcupines? Yeah. <laughs> a parliament of owls. Wow. That sounds so Yeah, I suck regal. at this game. Yeah. Yeah. And yes. What are students? What a group of students. Gaggle? Gaggle. Gaggle. Oh. <laughs> Clearly, nice. that is true. <laughs> it must be right. So... In July, after this flap of UFO sightings, Air Force Intelligence, because this is their business, right? These are things happening in the mm-hmm. air over the United States. It's, the, it's Air Force's concern. And the FBI put together the first sort of official project to examine UFO sightings and to ask the question, okay, is there something up there? And if there is something up there, what is it? I think this is a good place to just pause and, and reflect on um, Elena's point about that UFOs are real. Right. And this is why the Air Force and other people throughout the various stories we're going to tell get involved, Mm -hmm. because it is very serious. If you are receiving if you're a defense department and you're receiving calls from who knows other military people saying, listen, there is some stuff going on in the sky. We can't identify what it is. In the case of Kenneth Arnold, I mean, this is, you know, a trained aviator. This isn't just some somebody like a prospector who might have gotten a bit drunk one night and saw mm. something in the sky he couldn't identify. No, of course, Lee isn't saying... Of course all not. prospectors yeah. are no, no, just, just He's most. saying that almost no. all of them just are. Just that one. Just that particular yeah. one and almost all the other ones. Another thing that this um, reminds me of is, so for example, the second man who spoke at our talk and other conspiracy kind of theorists like him, they see the fact that the Air Force and places like this track this as like evidence of a conspiracy. Mm. And that as though the government or the Air Force is hiding things. Meanwhile, you can access these documents, and many people do. Like he said online, he can see all the files of, like, some things are redacted, but to show how many sightings there are of things that are unidentified, it doesn't mean that the government is hiding something. Hiding something. They're, like you said, genuinely investigating because this is their territory, and this could be some sort of risk as well if they don't understand what some of these things are. Oh, absolutely. I mean, we're talking about 1947, 1948. If we place people historically, like in a really general sense, like 1948 in North America, mm-hmm. what's going on? Cold War and fears of things invading and dropping. and Yeah, yeah, exactly. We've just had a world war, which basically ended because of air power. Mm-hmm. So the skies have now become a menacing place. You know, sometimes, and this is maybe getting a bit in the weeds, but I, I think about Somebody say in 1948, let's imagine somebody who's 48 years old and has lived in Western Europe or in America, uh, North America. I, if I had had their life experience, I think I'd be extremely paranoid mm-hmm. because they have gone through uh, one world war, then a major depression, then another major depression because the first one of 1921, 1922 gets forgotten, then the rise of fascism, then another catastrophic mm-hmm. war that made the first war seem like peanuts in comparison, and now it's three years on and you're getting into the Cold War, I think I would be quite um, scared 
Sure. Yeah. I, I think on edge. Yeah. I think that because this is what I do in my life. I think this is what most of us do. I understand my current situation through a lens of what's happened to me in the past. And if that has been my past experience, mm -hmm. right? If at the age of 14, uh, you know, World War One starts and at the age of 45, World War Two ends, mm -hmm. what am I, what are the experiences I'm reflecting on? So if you think those are the people in power, those are the people who are making decisions. Um, those are the people who are calling the Air Force and other places with like sightings because, mm -hmm. you know, they're scared. Yeah. And I mean, think about Lee's hypothetical person born in 1900. When they're born... There, are, there is kind of a scientific consensus amongst a lot of people that heavier than air flight is not possible. By the time they're 45, giant airplanes have destroyed entire cities, harnessing the power of the atom. That's happened in one person's mm -hmm. lifetime to go from flight is impossible to, hey, not only is flight possible, we can turn cities into shadows and ash now. That is not a very long period of time. No, exactly. So, I, yeah, just to say that I think that People will be susceptible to pattern, patternicity, to sure. seeing certain patterns, to being a bit paranoid. Mm -hmm. and, and I think that the decision makers are in a very, uh, it's very reasonable for them to act on these things. For sure. Right. Yeah. And sometimes that paranoia is justified. Because in 1948, uh, something happens that uh, I think also kind of shapes the way that we're going to look at the rest of this the rest of this subject, because in 1948, we have somebody killed pursuing a UFO. Hmm. So it's January 7th, 1948. Captain Thomas Mantell, is an Air, he was an Air Force officer. He's a World War II veteran, a uh, winner of the Distinguished Flying Cross for Heroism Under Fire. Uh, he was part of the D-Day landings. So this is a guy who was considered a very good pilot, very cautious and careful pilot. And post-war... He joins the Kentucky Air National Guard flying the, F, uh, flying the F-51D. Uh, and he is stationed near Fort Knox. And his job is basically, you know, to patrol the skies and make sure everything's copacetic over the United States. On January the 7th, I think it's Godman uh, Army Airfield, gets a call from a policeman stating that he saw something strange in the sky over Kentucky. A bunch of other people start calling in. A bunch of people have seen something strange in the sky. Uh, it's referred to as large, metallic, teardrop-shaped. One person says it's about a quarter the size of the full moon. So it's a, it's a very large thing up in the sky, very noticeable. Lots of people have seen this, to the point that I think it's safe to say something was in the sky. Yeah. And the people on this Air Force base see it, uh, including the control tower sergeant at Fort Knox sees the object. I mean, he doesn't necessarily believe his own eyes. He calls other people in and they say, yes, we can also see this strange thing in the sky. Uh, it's very white. Now, at this moment, four fighters, four F-51s, including one flown by Thomas Mantell, sort of enter the airspace. And so they are directed to intercept this object. They are sent to intercept it. And if necessary, if it is a threat, if it is a hazard, to, to uh, shoot it down. So they scramble them towards the object. Uh, one of the pilots is low on fuel and he has to pretty much immediately pull off. Uh, but the other three pilots, including Mantell, climb up to about 12,000 feet. This thing is still higher up mm. than 12,000 feet. Now here's the problem. They don't have oxygen with them. Now above 12,000 feet, it gets a little bit dicey if you're up there without oxygen. Mm. Two of the pilots discontinue the pursuit. 
But Mantell continues on after this thing. Now, there is some discrepancies about what he says. There's some disagreement amongst witnesses in the control tower about what he said. It's generally accepted that he said something along the lines of, it's metallic and of tremendous size. Mm -hmm. Uh, He continues to climb past 20,000 feet. Wow. And then he breaks off radio communication. By 3.50 in the afternoon, the object is gone. Mantel hasn't come back. Hmm. Uh, Then they get a call. Mantel's plane has been found. It's been crashed. He's been killed. Uh, They find his watch. His watch has been stopped at 3.18, so they know when the crash was. And now we've got a dead pilot. We've got a dead pilot chasing UFO. There has to be some kind of explanation. Can I pause here and and say that this was, for me, a big revelation when I started doing research around aliens? Because the way I encountered aliens first was, I think, more through the type of MUFON outfits that you guys started Mm -hmm. the podcast with, where... And I I wasn't there, and I don't mean to say anything mean, but there's hey, a... I, think I like MUFON as an organization. Yeah. Well, yeah, I, I'm, that's what I mean. Like, I'm not trying to disparage the people who are part of that, but there is a sense in which they're kind of hokey. There's a sense in which it's kind of laughable. And, and that is a, a lot of what I thought UFO abduction stuff was really about or mm-hmm. what UFOs were about. And what really shocked me in all of this is... There are so many credible stories like this of, you know, a lot of different people Mm -hmm. at the same time seeing something that is really inexplicable, sending out an aircraft to try and figure out what it is. You know, again, these aren't UFO hunters. These Mm -hmm. are people whose uh, mission statement is to protect the United States. And, you know, if if there's something in the sky, figure it out. Yeah, these aren't people trying to make a reality show about haunted houses. So it's... And that's what I find so compelling in, in, in this narrative is that there are people, a lot of people sometimes, who really saw something that for all intents and purposes is just unexplainable. And this is just one of them. I mean, we, we can't ask the uh, podcast audience to go through the thousands of examples that we have gone through. But, I mean, this is not even that rare, right? No, it's happened hundreds and hundreds of times. Now, of course, Project Sign, which I referenced earlier, the, uh, the Air Force Intelligence FBI program, they are sent to look into this incident to find mm-hmm. out what killed Mantell. And the official explanation is, you guys ready? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Are you ready to be underwhelmed? <laughs> planet Venus. He was chasing the planet Venus. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, I, Lee's already mad. Yeah. No, no. I thought when I... Okay. <laughs> yeah, gather yourself <laughs> for a second. I gotta, yeah, I got to calm myself. But when... I first heard this. My eyes could not roll any further into the back of my head without like physically causing trauma. So, and then something weird happened. The thing was itself not that weird. I went last summer, it's a true story. I was out uh, in the summer with my son and we decided to do some stargazing. Mm-hmm. And um, the problem with stargazing in the summer, if you have a young kid, is that it doesn't get late, yeah. uh, dar- dark like until really late, yeah. right? So I, how do I do this? So what I did was I took my tent out into the backyard and I took the cover off. So we had like a mesh thing to look through and we could basically kind of go to sleep and then wake up whatever anyway Mm -hmm. he was out like you know 8 p.m it was over he did not do any stargazing i stuck around though a bit and 
this is after we started the podcast. This is after I have been researching conspiracies and UFOs and all this kind of stuff for a long time. There were four separate things where I was like, what is that in the sky? Mm-hmm. Is that moving? Mm-hmm. Is that coming towards me? <laughs> is that four, abducting me? Four separate times when I was like, and one of them was Venus. Mm-hmm. Where again, like you're like, mm. that's such a dumb explanation. But Venus is an, can be an incredibly, appear as an incredibly bright star. Sure. And because it's so close to the earth, if you focus on it, you notice it moving. Hmm. Like over yeah. the time pe- period of an hour, that thing goes from point A to point B and it's a trackable distance. Like what the hell is wow. going on here? Yeah. Like how come this thing that's really far away is though clearly moving towards me? Wow. Yeah, there was three other things which were also... What were the other things? Well, one of them... One of them was aliens. Oh, well, I tell you, one of them, I think what happened was it was a very small plane and it happened to turn and... As it turned, it beamed its right. lights right. directly at me. But what the experience was for me on the ground was there's nothing, there's nothing. Suddenly, a yeah. huge light emerges out of the sky and then disappears again. Right. Uh, that was number two. Venus was number one. There was a shooting star. And Sounds like I th- a hell of a night. Mm-hmm. Well, it's just, you know, it's a night in the country. This mm-hmm. is just how things are when it's dark and you see stuff. But I think all of those points are excellent. But I think that what you just said at the end is important. What time was it? It was, uh, well, it was after 10 because it had gotten dark. It was not three in the afternoon. No, it was not three in the afternoon. So that's an issue. That is, yeah, okay. That's a good point. That's a really good point. (laughs) That's a good point, yeah, Yeah, okay. Also, um, of course, Mantell would have been used to seeing the planet Venus. It is very bright. It is, it's the morning star. It's the first Mm -hmm. thing, it's the third brightest object in the sky for the most part after the sun and the moon. Mantell was sort of treated like a bit of a fool, a bit of a buffoon. It's like, oh, he was trying to shoot down a planet, he went too high, and he crashed because his oxygen ran out. Right. But that doesn't seem to fit in with what Mantell was like as a person or as Mm -hmm. a pilot. Uh, One of his close friends uh, has this comment, which I think is both chilling, and once we figure out what this thing was in the sky, I think it's sort of sad. Uh, A close friend of Mantell said, the only thing I can think was that he was after something that he believed to be more important than his life or his family. Mm-hmm. Like, if he just yeah, saw a wow. bright light in the sky, he's not going to risk his life to try yeah, to no. get to that. But he Maybe was that... determined to figure out what that was to pursue it as much as he could. Yeah. 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 And again, for the audience, this is going to sound like it's a one-off, right? You have this one guy who saw this one thing who might have had some delusion. But no, no, no. This is just one example mm-hmm. of so many very trustworthy people who did something out of character. There have been fighter pilots who have opened fire oh. on UFOs. There have been fighter pilots who have gotten into dogfights with UFOs. Well, I was going to save this for a future episode. I maybe will mention it again then. But on that, imagine the following scenario. Imagine it's 1952 and you are a test pilot flying the highest flying fastest aircraft in the world like an f-86 or something yeah he would yeah know. whatever number whatever sure. <laughs> i could have just made something up whatever letter and number i tried to make it up off air it did yeah. not work out at all um and then so you're flying this thing and you look up and a good 10 15 20 000 feet above you is an object flying faster than you 
what's happening here? Mm -hmm. I mean, you come back to base. What are you supposed to tell your superiors? What, what do you, how do you make sense of something like this? There was something in the sky that was twice as fast as my high performance fighter jet. Which has only just been developed by the richest nation in the world. Mm. That is most the most technologically advanced nation in the world. I'm in that plane, and yet there's something faster and higher flying. Yeah. Mind-blowing. After the death of Mantell, it becomes clear that they need to devote some more attention to this. Uh, there's a, a short-lived a U.S. government study... Uh, particular part of the U.S. government called the ATIC, or the Air Technical Intelligence Center. Uh, And they're the ones who have put together Project Sign. Project Sign comes to a conclusion in 1949 with the final report that they are uncertain of what is in the sky. Now, obviously, this is unacceptable, particularly because public attention has started to increase, and people are starting to more often talk about these UFOs and flying saucers and things like that. And so at that point... And this is, I think, a very interesting study in things like confirmation bias. Project Grudge replaces Project Sign. And Project Grudge is run by uh, General Hoyt Vandenberg. He is, he can only be described as an anti-saucer advocate. It is very important to him that nobody believes in UFOs. Mm -hmm. And the entire point of Project Grudge is not to investigate what is in the sky. The entire point of Project Grudge is to, one claim that there's an explanation for every UFO report, and two, make anybody who reports a UFO look foolish. Mm-hmm. Everything is referred to in Grudge as a hoax or hallucination or misidentifying common objects. Uh, they even go to the, to the uh, point of getting a Saturday evening post writer named Sidney Shallot to write an article in 1949. And in that article, uh, Shallot uses phrases like the great flying saucer scare, a rich, full-blown screwiness, uh, fearsome freaks. So basically trying to lead with his language to try to paint the entire UFO movement mm-hmm. as something silly and goofy and not really worth anybody's serious time. Right. Even though he was a uh, Saturday Evening Post journalist, he was basically doing the work of the American Air Force at this point to try to tamp down any kind of speculation. Weirdly, it has the exact opposite effect. And people become more and more interested in this flying saucer idea. Is that like when a police officer says there's nothing to see here and then your attention is much yeah. more drawn to the, you know, the thing that they're trying to keep you away from? Right. Yeah. Or when something is censored, then people just want access to it. Because it's censored. Yeah. 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 I exactly. didn't actually care until yeah. you censored yeah. it. Yeah. Now I, I want to see what it is. Yeah. Like if somebody yeah. just, I was, I was walking down the street and somebody said, there's nothing to see over there. Right? <laughs> yeah. I'd be like, there's got Let to be something in. to see over yeah. there. <laughs> So this is an interesting study, I think, in confirmation bias, which is an important idea, and I don't know if something we've ever overtly talked about, but what's the basic idea of confirmation bias? That we seek out those things that confirm what we already believe. Yeah. And, it, and why is this a dangerous thing if we're trying to genuinely do critical thinking? Well, it seems that, you know, just, I mean, to elaborate on Elena's point, it it doesn't occur to me that that's what I'm doing, mm-hmm. right? When I go out no, and, no. and I try and just experience the world, it doesn't seem to me that I am favoring experiences that verify my uh, predispositions and, and uh, my beliefs. It feels like I'm just experiencing the world as it is. Mm-hmm. And so I think to answer your question, Nathan, is that it gives us a wrong sense of what's going on, to be frank. Well, right? think about like a, you know, an anti-vaxxer searching out on the web like 
vaccines cause autism and just right. getting back, you know, other blogs and sites and things of that confirm what they already believe rather than genuinely inquiring and looking at both sides and looking at the evidence and where it is, you know, so it, it, it lacks that actual critical thinking. Yeah, because if something disagrees with you, you can dismiss it. Mm -hmm. If something agrees with you, then you can pay attention to it. Mm -hmm. I mean, an example I often use is if you have the idea that women are bad drivers, and then you go out into the world and drive around in a car for a few hours, and you will pass thousands mm -hmm. of cars being driven by women. And then if you see one of them make a lane change <laughs> without signaling, you're like, see? Yeah. yeah. I knew it. Knew it. And that's the thing you remember. You don't remember or even notice right. all of the thousands of women who are doing things which disprove your theory. Mm -hmm. So here's the problem. If you have a project like Grudge, which starts off with the bias that UFOs are nonsense and we have to make sure that people don't believe in them, that is not the way to scientific inquiry. Mm -hmm. Because anybody who comes up with anything that disagrees with that conclusion is going to be funneled out of the program. Mm -hmm. And here's another thing that Lee often points out that I think is, is super important. Everybody, including us, occasionally will say something like, the American government did this. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, why is that a problem when we say it? So you're looking at me. Um, this is one of your This is like, one of my one of your windmills. This is it. That's a windmill, a hobby horse, whatever. Because they uh, the the American government or any government isn't one thing. Mm. It's it's I mean even a single institution within the American government is going to be composed of different people with different motivations. And you just think about like if how it, is it likely that somebody somewhere in the American government hates their boss and wants to stick it to them? You know, then well, then they're not operating necessarily as one unified body. And then the American government is huge. I mean, you have the FBI and the CIA who can't stand each other. Yeah. And barely and, talk a lot of the time. Right, they barely talk and actually quite enjoy screwing each other over if yep. they get the opportunity mm -hmm. to. There's a Justice Department. I mean, you know, there's, all, yeah. there's it, it's just a huge mess of an institution with so many different uh, people, intentions, mandates, desires. Yeah, yeah, think about your own workplace or your own classrooms and try to imagine if you were trying to operate as, as like one entity, right. it's not going to work. So at the same time, you had people like General Vandenberg who had a radical anti-UFO bias. Uh, you also had other generals within the United States Air Force, people like uh, General Charles Garland, who had seen a UFO and probably didn't enjoy the fact that all UFOs were being dismissed mm -hmm. as hoaxes and nonsense. So the pro-saucer movement was able to gain enough traction so that they were able to change Project Grudge into Project Blue Book. So Project Blue Book is put into the hands of a person who is, I think, a bit of a patron saint of our podcast. Yes. This is like, we're often talking about villains and people have done terrible things. This guy, I'm going to say he's one of our heroes. This oh, He deserves a special shout out. His book deserves a special shout out. Oh, his book is amazing. He is brilliant and he has a funny name. Yes, and I don't know how to pronounce his name. I've never actually said it out loud. Captain Edward Ruppelt? Ruppelt? Yeah, I don't know. R-U-P-P-E-L-T. Also hard to spell. Yes. R-U-P-P-E-L-T. Captain Ruppelt. We're going to have to decide right now how we're going to say it. Ruppelt? Ruppelt. Ruppelt, I think so. Okay. Ruppelt? Okay. So who is Ruppelt? He was a World War II navigator in B-29s. He had a degree in aeronautical engineering. And during the Korean War, he was assigned to the Air Technical Intelligence Center to study bits of shot-down Soviet jets, mostly MiG-15s. 
So he uh, had an interest in kind of exploring non-American technology and assessing potential threats and things like that. And the thing about Ruppelt is he had a very good reputation for being careful, fair, and methodical. He didn't have an axe to grind. He just wanted to know, okay, what are these things? What is in the sky? What is happening? Uh, so he puts together a team. Uh, one of the most important team members, he is an astronomer named uh, Dr. Alan Hynek, uh, who actually you might not have heard of, but you have heard of his work because he is the guy who comes up with a categorization system of close encounters of the first, second, and third, hmm. fourth kind. Oh, okay. So that's where that idea comes from. He's an interesting character because he had been a consultant on Project Sign and Project Grudge and had started being an absolute complete skeptic about UFOs, but had come across so many reports that he couldn't explain that he was starting to become a little bit less certain, mm -hmm. which is exactly what Ruppelt wanted in a team member. He wanted somebody who wasn't already certain about what he thought. So just to put us in the context here, Ruppelt takes over Grudge, or Grudge becomes Grudge something becomes new? Grudge becomes Blue Book. Grudge becomes Blue Book, and Blue Book's mandate. So this is, again, it's still Air Force, right? Yep. And the Air Force is trying to get behind all these sightings. They had Project Grudge, which was very anti-UFO. It was basically just trying to smear anybody who saw UFO. And now we get this guy, and he is going to be quite neutral about it. Yeah. Uh, he adopts a more thorough, less leading style. Uh, he coins the phrase, to give you an idea of how careful he is, he coins the phrase UFO. Because up until then, everyone's talking about flying saucers. And he says, we can't use the term flying right. saucer because that's going to change mm -hmm. the way people think about mm -hmm. these things. So we just need something as vague as mm -hmm. possible so it's more accurate. He interviews everybody who's going to be a part of this project. And he asks them, do you believe in UFOs? And if they say, yes, I definitely believe that aliens exist. You're he does not get to be part of the project, yeah. right? And if you say, oh, aliens, it's nonsense. Of course it isn't true. Also do not also, get to be part of the project. Yeah. He doesn't want anybody who already has made up their mind. Because once you've made up your mind, yeah. you're no longer paying attention because of what Elena was saying mm -hmm. about the dangers of confirmation bias. So he applies a systematic method to each report. Uh, basically, the first thing you do is you always check weather and research balloon data. You have uh, Hynek... Uh, the astronomer evaluate possible astronomical uh, explanations like stars and planets and meteors and things like that. You check all the weather data. He arranges a system so that people can report UFOs without being afraid of being accused of mm -hmm. being crazy or hoaxers or whatever, trying to remove the stigma. Ruppelt refers to the days of Project Grudge as the Dark Ages. Huh. Because it was so clearly not trying to get to the truth. It was right. so clearly trying to... Just squash all the... Exactly. Yeah. Now, we know all of this because Project Blue Book is turned into a book of which he's basically the author. The Report on Unidentified Flying Objects, the original 1956 edition. And it's a brilliant book. It, I, I have to admit, it's the best book on UFOs that I've read. Precisely as... Nathan said, because it's not leading in one way or another. And it's just a summary of all this evidence. And again, this is where a lot of these examples that I've been bringing up come from. And you think to yourself, wow, okay, hold on a second. If this guy this really did see guy. this, yeah, and, and, you know, 
really did see something. Mm-hmm. And this guy's talking to him. And he's asking all the right questions. He's asking the questions I would want to ask. And he's walking out of the room, not sure what it was. I thought that was really powerful. Yeah. I, I cannot, if you like UFOs, if you're interested in this, get this book. And also... I'm going to post a picture of it. Oh, that's a good idea. Yeah. The, even if you're not interested in UFOs, but you're interested in just a, a, a method for how to do this kind of research well. Careful thinking. Careful thinking without getting all your personal emotion, feelings, opinions involved in it. Uh, he's uh, really, this is why he's our patron saint. Yeah. And it's, he's a pretty good writer too. Like the book is an enjoyable read as well. Yeah. So one of the first things he does is he says, okay, like, come on, Venus, really? So he reopens the Mantel incident and he asks the question, he gets his astronomer, Heineck, and he says, was it Venus? Like, where was Venus that day mm-hmm. at three o'clock at in time. the afternoon? Is it a visible thing? Elena, do you want to give us a quote from the yes. book? Okay, it's it's pretty, well, it's a little bit long. Okay. Um, about a year later, the Air Force released its official report on the incident. To use a trite term, it was a masterpiece in the art of, quote, weasel wording. It said that the UFO might have been Venus or it could have been a balloon, maybe two balloons. It probably was Venus, except that this is doubtful because Venus was too dim to be seen in the afternoon. This jolted writers who had been following the UFO story. Only a few weeks before, the Saturday Evening Post had published a two-part story entitled What You Can Believe About Flying Saucers. The story had official sanction and had quoted the Venus theory as a positive solution. To clear up the situation, several writers were allowed to interview a major in the Pentagon who was the Air Force's Pentagon expert on UFOs. The major was asked directly about the Venus, about the conclusion of the Mantell incident, and he flatly stated that it was Venus. The writers pointed out the official Air Force analysis. The major's answer was, quote, they checked again and it was Venus, end quote. He didn't know who they were, where they had checked, or what they had checked, but it was Venus. What I love about that passage is that you can, like, you, Ruppelt doesn't hide his frustrations. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You can feel that totally. sarcasm. He doesn't totally. know who he asked. He doesn't yeah. know why. Just he doesn't know. They, yeah. they, they checked they it. They checked and it. when they checked it, it was Venus. It right? was Venus. So he's like, so he asks Heineck, and Heineck says, no, it wasn't Venus, because... It's not like Venus is unpredictable. We know exactly where it should be all the time, and mm-hmm. we know what time of day it was. And Heineck tells him it wasn't Venus. It, you know, it I, don't, too dim. I don't know this, but it seems like it would also be the kind of thing that would occur to somebody in the flight control tower. You know, <laughs> if, if Venus was like super bright and right in front of the airplane, to be like, no, no. Don't. It's just Venus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Don't Don't happens every day around this time. <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah. So like, annoying. I've, but, I've seen it literally hundreds of times. He says, okay, well, then I'm confident that, no, it wasn't Venus. He looks then at the possibility that, is it, uh, was it maybe a reflection off of canopy? Mm-hmm. Because that can happen. I mean, as a, a navigator in B-29s, he had experienced it himself, where for a second you're distracted. Whoa, what's that? Or if, think about if you're driving at night, sometimes you'll see a reflection on a window and you'll think it's a car. So are you saying this would be a reflection of another airplane or something? Or the on, sun like or... The, because it's, it's a round canopy. I see. Okay, so okay, maybe okay. it's a distortion or something. Okay. Now, I, I love this part. So he asks Heineck, what about the possibility of it being a reflection off of the glass? And Heineck says, I am not an expert on refre- reflections off of glass. I'm not going to say. <laughs> That's what research looks like. Oh, I love magnificent. it. Magnificent. So he finds uh, an expert in that. And 
realizes, well, no, because they were chasing it from different angles right. for a long time yeah. and at different altitudes. Like it would not have maintained its integrity if it was just a reflection off of the canopy. other two pilots who turned around. They saw it as well, right? They had also seen it. Okay. All right. So he eliminates carefully all of the possible solutions. And then he comes to one that he thinks might explain it. And this is actually a bit tragic, I think. Uh, because if you go back to that quotation about how Mantell's friend said he must have been chasing something, he must have thought it was important. There had been a lot of comments about how it looked like a like sort of a teardrop shape, according mm-hmm. to a lot of witnesses. Now, I read uh, the work of Carl Jung, who actually devoted an entire book, the famous psychologist, who devoted an entire book to the UFO phenomenon. And he said uh, that the reason that it looked like a teardrop shape is because... Something, something uh, represents heavenly water and the essence of life. And so mass hallucination, something, something, blah, blah, blah. I think we get a sense of Nathan's esteem for Carl Jung in this explanation. (laughs) But Ruppelt comes up with another possibility as to why it looked like a teardrop. Uh And that's because there was something in the sky. There was something weird and strange in the sky that looked like a teardrop. It was probably a top secret skyhook balloon so again I, I i'm sorry this is my role apparently in this podcast today is this is the other thing that i found so fascinating in this research is that most people who reported something did see something mm-hmm. like it's not as mm-hmm. though again like with me stargazing with my son eh, you know the venus thing like is that some I, I, first of all i would not have reported that Right. I wasn't sure what it was. It was seemed a bit weird. You know, I mean, I did see something. It wasn't like I was making it up. I might have been wrong about what it was, but I wasn't making it. Now, this is the thing about all of these reports is that these people actually did see something. Yeah. And the surprising thing, I mean, the real revelation comes when somebody took them at their word. Oh, you saw a tear shaped object floating in the sky. Let's not dismiss it as mm-hmm. Venus. Let's not just forget about it and whatever. You were probably hallucinating. I mean, that was another re- thing that Grudge always did was it was either Venus or they were like hallucinating. Yeah, hallucinating. Yeah. And it was just whipped out as yeah. just some just kind so of... dismissive. Yeah. yeah. Like as and though it could ruin somebody's reputation. Yeah. I mean, it, it ruined Mantell's reputation. Here was a guy who was like trying to no. intercept something weird in the sky and it's like, oh, the buffoon was trying to shoot down a planet. Mm-hmm. Right. Now... You did say that it was a thing, you, yep. you and you told us what it was. So what, what, what the heck? I mean, the the Skyhook balloon project was <laughs> what top the hell secret. Are these this things? Is, this is the problem, right? <laughs> because when people have the idea, it's like, oh, that seems like they're covering it up. They're saying it was the planet Venus when it wasn't. That feels like a cover up. It feels like a cover up because it was a cover up. It was a cover up. The sky when they say program. it's a weather balloon, it sounds like a cover-up. Yeah. It was a cover-up. Yeah, it's often it often is a cover-up. The thing is, though, that the American government in this case turns out they weren't trying to cover up aliens. They were trying to cover up this top-secret spy-hook balloon project. And what was, was a, that? A super-high-altitude uh, balloon that could have perhaps been used to float over the Soviet Union to test for nuclear explosion tests, or perhaps you could is strap this, a camera on there. Oh, it, so my understanding see. was that... This thing? Yep, and yes. so Elena's found a picture of it, okay, and what, d- what does that look like to you? It looks like... Um, 
It should. It almost looks like a parachute yeah, that's shape, kind of. Not what I thought yeah. No, looks I like mean, a... Tear Shop would be, Teardrop would be the other way around. Well, they didn't say that it was going down. That's true. Just the shape was, oh, yeah. Oh, look at, yeah. Yeah. Looks like a little long squid or something in a way, or a, okay, I'll post this, I'll post a photo of this too. Oh, and there's different levels of it being blown up. Yeah, and also you can see sometimes there's a there's a red paint to that, and mm-hmm. a lot of people had said that it looked like it almost had like a red gondola underneath really? it. Really? So I think it's safe to say that, yeah, Mantell was not foolishly trying to shoot down Venus. Mm-hmm. He was being confronted with something weird in the sky. Yeah. And then okay. the Air Force, rather than admitting what had happened, they allowed Mantell to be basically dismissed as a fool. Mm-hmm. Because what... So, okay, so my understanding was that the Skyhook, what they were doing was they were actually attaching um, audio recording devices to it in yep. order to try and detect uh, above ground uh, and maybe even... Um, at atmospheric nuclear tests done by the Soviet right. Union. And because precisely it was not possible to fly over the Soviet Union, at least before the, well... Well, we'll, get to, we'll, get, we'll to get to we'll some, get to that. We'll get to that. Anyway, don't stay tuned. But at this point, wasn't technically possible to fly over. They didn't have any spies, uh, at least not at any level that could give them this kind of info. So the question was, how do you find this out? Like, how do you know Mm -hmm. if the Soviets are blowing stuff up? The skyhook was their solution. These are, and again, the dimensions for me, if, if you as a listener are hearing, oh, there's a balloon in the sky, I mean, how big do you think that is? Like the size of a house or something? I don't know. These were massive. They were giant. They were multiple football fields in diameter. Mm-hmm. And they had this metallic coat. There was no obvious inside to them. You know, there was no, no like... propulsion. Cabin, it didn't look like... Propulsion. Yeah. 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 And there's just... So again, and, and as uh, Nathan was saying, it's uh, top secret. So these are other parts of the military don't know that this even exists. Mm-hmm. So you go up there. And what do you see? Something that is higher than it should be. There's no obvious explanation for this metallic, silvery, giant object floating about. Now, as I understand it, the reason it was visible was because it was a malfunction. It had come down a bit or something. Because they mm-hmm. were supposed to be even higher. They were yep. supposed to be like 75,000 feet. But every now and then, you know, one of them would like, I don't know, get a rupture. Yeah, they're and, balloons. Yeah, exactly. So I think this is, again, why Ruppelt is our patron saint, because he's the first person, at least in the official uh, side of things, who takes this story really seriously, but doesn't then jump to any conclusion. Mm -hmm. And as a result, almost accidentally discovers a secret project. Yeah. Although he doesn't know that this is what he's discovered. Yeah. And he does this for a few years. And, and, and for a number of projects, and for, I, might, I might add. Actually. Yeah, it's true. And we don't have time to get into uh, any of the other ones that he investigated. Again, I can't uh, recommend this book highly enough. And maybe we will pick a couple of them and do like a full podcast mm-hmm. on, a, on a few of these specific ones. But eventually he becomes exhausted. He isn't given much funding to the point when you, you like he's he's taking buses from town to town because every time there's a report, he's got to go check into it and this guy's dedicated like his book is full of stuff like i came home at 12 o'clock at night a new report came in so six o'clock in the morning i find myself at the airport going back out to check something new out yeah and heineck who had been so frustrated by a sign and grudge said of ruppelt in my contacts with him i found him to be honest and seriously puzzled about the whole phenomenon mm-hmm. 
And that's why we like him, because mm-hmm. he was honest and seriously puzzled. Welcome that's to the club, like Rumble. Yeah. 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 Right. Honest and seriously yeah. puzzled. I'm seriously puzzled. After a few years, uh, they not only cut his funding, but they cut his staff from 10 to 2, and he says, like, there's no point in me Mm-mm. continuing this project anymore. It, it's it's not being treated seriously. He never really comes to a conclusion about what's in the sky. He says a lot of the things that people see can be explained, and some of them can't. Mm-hmm. And that's what we'll come back to, those things that can't, because maybe we can explain a few more of the things, because we have the advantage of being in the future compared to Ruppelt. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But what's interesting is then what happens to Project Blue Book. So after Ruppelt leaves, he's replaced by Captain Charles Harden in 1954. Uh, all you need to know about him is, according to Ruppelt, uh, Harden basically thinks anyone who is even interested in UFOs is crazy, so clearly that's not going to get very good results. Mm-hmm. Uh, Harden gets replaced by Captain uh, George uh, Gregor in 1956. And what he did was he changed the classification system to make it easier to dismiss reports. So what Ruppelt would have said was a possible comet, uh, Gregor would have said, it's a probable comet. And if Ruppelt had said it was a probable comet, then Gregor says, ah, it's a comet. Mm-hmm. So he basically, he sort of lowers the the bar for as far as how much evidence is required. Uh, then briefly in 1958, there's a bit of, uh, a bit of light. He's replaced by Major Robert Friend, who puts forth a more legitimate effort. Uh, Heineck, who's still on the project at this point, gets sort of excited. And he says, oh, this is a great opportunity to reinvestigate all of these reports that we were dismissing before. Gets no funding. At that point, Major F- uh, Friend uh, steps down in 1963 and says, you know what? This project is useless. They're not taking it seriously. This is a serious matter. They're not funding it. I quit. Uh, he is replaced by Major by Major Hector Quintanilla, who is just rabidly anti-UFO, has no expertise in any relevant area. And I'll give you just a couple, compared to how careful Ruppelt was with Blue Book, here's a couple examples of some of the things that Quintanilla investigated. In summer of 65, a bunch of witnesses in Texas saw large aerial objects. An Air Force base in Oklahoma tracked four objects on radar. Official Blue Book explanation, planet Jupiter. Oh, man. God. You know, it's it's maybe worth ending on just because what what Ruppel did was he only looked at what he considered actually really serious, unexplainable ones. Um, and I know that that's what our project is going to be for some of the upcoming podcasts is to look at some of these. But sure. maybe it's worth just also looking at how he dismisses some of the false positives because being so careful he did come up with a very big list of if the following are part of the analysis probably uh, um, a false positive so one of the things he notices that i thought was interesting is that um, often sightings occur without an obvious background uh, to help give reference to the object that you're seeing. Yeah, right. like the right. way that uh, when Kenneth Arnold saw the saw whatever he saw, he was able to measure them against the mountaintops. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And a lot of UFO sightings that happen, say, at night on the ocean, mm-hmm. it's really, really, really difficult to be able to gauge the size of the object. Yeah. And if you can't gauge its size, you can't gauge how far it is. No. And so you can't gauge how fast it's going. So you could see, and maybe this is an unfair example, a firefly right? That's a couple of feet away from you. But if you have no way of mm-hmm. contextualizing that object, it could appear to you to be really far and going in really erratic motion. 
actually, just on that, one of the big false positives for UFOs are uh, Japanese fishermen's squid lights. Oh, really? Yeah, so I had to look this up. Um, apparently what happens is in order to incentivize the squids to come up to the surface, they use extremely high powered lights on these pretty small vessels that they shine into the ocean. And then the squid are like, I don't know what they think. It's like sunny or summer or something. They come, come and come up to the surface where it's easier to kill them. But if you got to imagine, right, if you're on a boat quite far away and you see some lights being moved, you know, and you don't know where the horizon mm-hmm. is, it will seem like there's four or are five... Are these green lights? Exactly. Green and then they have these, lights. like, they're totally creepy colors. And we'll yeah. post that, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, we have squid to lights. post the Japanese uh, squid uh, boat... Fi- oh, goodness. Oh, Jap- yeah. Exactly. It's all rigged up. That's amazing. Right? And you got to imagine that now totally any background. Don't know where the horizon is. Can't you don't see, know anything. Yeah. And these things are being moved. So it'll be like, it seems as though they're going across vast distances mm-hmm. in impossible periods of time. Um, so there are a lot of, like, he he was very careful, too, in dismissing a lot of stuff. But dismissing it based on exactly. proper evidence. Like, then, for example, this one here of summer 65 saying that it was Jupiter that people had seen. It's not fair, right? That's well, not ever going to appear on the radar. It's not going to show up on radar. In 1966, several police officers chased a bright silvery object for about 30 minutes. Oh, let me guess. It was Venus? It was Venus. (laughs) (laughs) So at this point, clearly Blue Book has gone back to being Project Grudge. Grudge, yeah. It has gone back to Grudge. In 1968, Hynek, the astronomer, this is what he says of Quintanilla, that his philosophy was disregard any evidence that was counter to his hypothesis. Oh, yeah. And as a scientist... That's great science there. Yeah, oh my God. It just gets you. So in 68, Hynek starts to publicly criticize Blue Book. He says they're no longer truly investigating reports, under-trained staff, under, uh, uh, overworked staff, poor statistical analysis, way too much time spent on PR rather than investigation, and a complete unscientific attitude and approach. And then in 1969, officially, Blue Book ends. Okay. Officially. Did anything... That you researched, Elena and Nathan, in in preparation for this and our upcoming podcasts, change your mind on your position on UFOs? Hmm. Sorry, I'm too busy looking at photos right now. <laughs> You've got down to... distracted. <laughs> yeah. Or for that matter, the little mini conference we went to. Oh, I mean, I would count that. Like as I said, I'm the least alien informed here today i thought we were doing a mini so i didn't even bring a book with me i don't have my notebook of notes i think what struck me about the the talk was just and actually what it got me thinking about was religion and just any parallels between like a belief in aliens and religiosity or a belief in some other higher power because it did seem like there was like there's this genuine sincere reverence for it there's a need for it. there's a need for it it's like this and, and people feel so strongly about it if they're firm believers and if they themselves have had some experience it's like a religious experience for them are, are you suggesting that it functions like a religion or is it that what we used to interpret religiously like say um 200 years ago, mm-hmm. I might have said angels have come visited me. And today I'll say little aliens have come visited me. Right. Is it that we're now interpreting it through the 
discourse of aliens or is it that it functions like a religion like people are I feel like it functions like a religion for people in the way it brings people together it's like a common story provides meaning well? Does, yeah are there parallels to the flat earth movement because that's what struck me with the flat earth movement mm-hmm. was this whole community aspect of it yes i mean i think a lot of these these conspiracy communities kind of find a home online and find this sense of community but with the flat earthers um i I have a lot more sympathy for the ufo community than for the flat earth community i'd have to say okay the flat earthers it's like they no yeah the flat earthers still believe generally that there's you know it's the government and the the whoever's that Mm -hmm. are controlling this big conspiracy that have us on this flat earth that they're not telling us about but it feels more genuine the 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 alien believers or you know experiencers it feels more genuine and sincere in this like real authentic need for meaning and for some sort of explanation or connection to something else one woman got up and and said i think there's some aliens who are there to protect us and some that are there to hurt us. And we have to really, you know, try and connect or whatever with those ones that are here to protect us. And, and so it is this real, I don't know. It's, it was really kind of mind blowing. Oh huh. yeah. Interesting. And then a guy started asking about whether the, the earth was hollow and then it got into the big thing and then it sort of split out into <laughs> yeah. factions and right. then it, it was almost like a bit of an altercation at one point. <laughs> How about you, Nathan? Did, is there something that sticks out for you in this process of learning about all of this that changed your mind or got you give you new insights? I don't... Uh, the, there's one thing that regardless of what we're talking about, it, it's funny because when we talked about Marilyn Monroe, this was my takeaway. When we talk about anything to do with the Cold War, this is my takeaway. When we were talking about Mantel, it, it, it's my takeaway, is that individual humans can get caught up and ground up in these sort of larger inhuman mechanisms. Mm. And so I can, that's why I'm always sympathetic for people who are trying to search out for some kind of meaning or purpose, because otherwise it can seem so grim. Mm -hmm. In fact, in our next episode, I think we will look at the more sinister side of UFOs and the American government. And we'll look at some of the ways where perhaps manipulation, disinformation, and... I, I would say even maybe criminal culpability. Mm-hmm. So in the next episode, we'll get into things like Area 51, mm-hmm. we'll get into the CIA, we'll get into Air Force Intelligence, and we'll go from the sort of almost naive honesty of Ruppelt to some pretty messed up stuff. Mm-hmm. I can't wait. It'll be grim. <laughs> 